0: Just take a moment quiet together and then I'll open us in prayer.
1: Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would
2: quiet our minds and our hearts this morning, that you would grant us peace as we are in the midst of our brothers and sisters. Pray that you would continue to guide us, grant us wisdom, help us to be open to seeing new things and learning new things. Give us eyes to see where you are present and at work, not just in our lives as individuals, but in the collective life of our community here at the table and also in our cities and in our homes and in our workplaces. In the name of the Father, the Son, in the Holy Spirit, Amen. It's kind of strange seeing myself on this Zoom because I feel like I'm like seven foot tall because of this angle. I kind of kind of like it. All right, welcome to week two of confronting Mammon with Jesus here at the table. Uh, today we are going to be looking at the question: Does desire shape Mammon, or does Mammon shape desire? And so. Just to kind of frame our time together this morning, I'm going to spend between about 20 and 25 minutes kind of providing us with an overview of our readings, uh, along with some reflections that came up for me as I was preparing this week. Uh, And then at the end, we're going to have plenty of time for questions and answers for people to share what they are reflecting on. Um, And then I have some some noticings to just in the last couple of weeks, things that I'm seeing in my workplace and I can't like shake how they relate to this course. And so I can introduce those as well, just depending on if we have specific questions on the readings or what comes up. And so just want to kind of frame that for you guys, but we can go ahead and dive in. So the first reading that I'm going to kind of go through is the reading Jesus and the Politics of Mammon by Hollis Phelps. And uh, we've covered a lot of this. You'll start to see just uh, some recurring themes here, uh, especially because it's something that's been on our radar as a church. But Jesus's teachings about mammon are pretty severe. He doesn't mince his words when he's talking about money. And so as we're going to kind of map out today, the way that we have approached and kind of moralized how we relate to money kind of in a way blunts the severity of Jesus's teaching. In our gospel passage that we're we're going to teach on this morning, uh, we have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where Jesus teaches that the rich man's wealth or mammon separates him from God. In his life, but also in this parable for eternity. Now, many of us have been taught that mammon, money or possessions that are not, they're not problematic in and of themselves. But it's all about what one does with those things. It's about how we use them, not about the things themselves. Uh, Our reading from Clement says, if you use it skillfully, it is skillful. Augustine says, things of this world are not sinful in and of themselves, but they can become occasions for sin. Has anybody ever heard this teaching in church? This is what I grew up being being taught. It's okay for you to have money, wealth, and possessions, but it's not okay for them to have you. (laughs) That's what I was uh, raised on. (laughs) (laughs) Valerie said it's a loophole. This view, however, reduces the problem of mammon to an internal, personal problem. Mammon cannot just be reduced to a matter of the heart, however. It is a system that orders our way of life. And as such, it does formative work inside us. Hollis Phelps says, God and mammon compete with each other as the value of values over and against the stated motivations of any particular individual. So they are naturally at odds with one another in that they are competing to order our lives. They are competing to establish how we define value and what values we hold as people as a result of that. When individual and collective relationships to mammon are treated as just a subjective internal disposition, the potency of mammon itself and its influence on us and our society and our community is usually ignored. So when conceiving of the problem of mammon as primarily moral in moral terms, in a way, it kind of excuses greedy behavior because we can just call it an outlier. And it, it fails to account for how the problem also lies, not just also, but perhaps even more, on the side of the object, money and wealth itself. So in part of this reading, Paul, we looked at the, the teachings and writings of Paul Tillich, and Paul Tillich talks about how any object can function as an object of faith. Faith, he says is an existential feature of the human experience to the extent that we are concerned about existing. So whether one would call themselves agnostic or a person of faith or spiritual in any way, faith orders human life in a way in that anything can be made an object of faith. So in this sense, we put our faith in the object, which we believe promises us ultimate fulfillment, And in this line of thinking, the object of faith actually possesses some amount of agency as it does compel us, it does compel the subject towards a certain corresponding end. Tillich's claims here about what faith is and what what can be an object of faith and how it orders our lives, helps us to better understand and to better see how mammon acts as a master and not just as a metaphor. Jesus does not bid the rich young ruler just to get rid of his notions of wealth, but in fact, to get rid of his wealth, his material possessions and money. So seeing mammon truly as not just a metaphor, but as a master, we see that mammon lays claims to us. It holds us captive and it compels us to and towards its ends, ends that perpetuate inequality and injustice. Paulus Phelps says, Mammon has a power all its own, a power different in kind than other so-called ultimate concerns. Concerns which are under Mammon, relegated to, this is for Father Ben, the penultimate.
0: Oh,
2: no. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes on to say, the only real rival is God, which is why Jesus says we cannot serve both God and Mammon. So to say this more frankly here. When Phelps is saying that mammon has a power all its own and it renders all other values as secondary, at least secondary, if you just sit back and think about life, right? Like as we've started to wade into looking at what mammon is, we've come to realize that it's the water that we swim in here at the table, right? It orders much of our week, where we go to work, how we uh, define what success is. It, It orders the way that we operate as family systems, as we function, where we live, everything about our life in a way is touched by mammon. And so if we don't have eyes to see how mammon has a role in influencing and shaping us, those all those other values that we believe we hold dear family, place, community, those very easily can quickly become at least secondary if not tertiary or beyond because mammon shapes and orders all of those. So an example from my other, my other job, and I've talked about this a little bit in the sermon, but right now it is so hard to buy a house. And if you were selling a house, you would probably have somewhere between five and 50 offers just in one weekend, right? Now we all know what the, cri- the assumed criteria is for deciding what the best offer is. Could somebody shout it out? What's the best offer? Cash, Cash the highest amount of money. Exactly. See, you guys are ready to be realtors. <laughs> This is great. <laughs> so the more that you dip your toes into looking at this, though, and you realize that we have a bit of a housing crisis on our hands, there's not enough houses for the amount of people that want to live in the city or in these areas. Then you start to ask the questions of who actually can't afford to pay cash or who can afford to spend the most amount of money. And when you look at that and look at the rates of people who are able to have to own homes, you see that Somebody that has already owned a home already has a certain amount of equity in that and so their ability to pay more is exponentially higher than a first time home buyer. And even more so we could get into, you know, structures of race in our country and how home ownership rates in a white community have basically stayed the same since 1970, but home ownership rates in the black community since 1970 have gone down 30%. And you can see how now when you go to sell your house in Carmel or Fishers or Bates Hendricks or here in Midtown, that just accepting the highest offer or the easiest one to deal with because it's cash, actually, unbeknownst to you, is furthering these systems and structures of oppression because people that can't afford to buy a house, still, now they even more can't afford to buy a house. So where will they have that equity to have generational wealth or money to buy their next house? (laughs) Oh. And so it goes. So we must account for mammon as a real and an active force. Mammon has a rule and a reign. Belief is not just an internal phenomenon that is separate from what we actually do. Instead, belief is a material phenomenon that takes shape through habits and practices. And these habits and practices shape our desire. Slavoj Žižek, Zizek (laughs) says that belief is a radically external phenomenon, and it cannot be equated with internal dispositions. So, sorry, belief is an external, it's a radically external phenomenon, and it cannot be equated with internal dispositions. So part of the reading talks about how when we see the word hypocrite or hypocrisy in the Bible, a lot of times we see we interpret it very frequently as like, oh, this person really believes this. The rich young ruler really believes that it's good for him to follow Jesus. But with, when confronted with the decision of following Jesus or keeping his money, we see that his actual belief, his object of faith, is this wealth, right? So another another way of saying this is what we do is what we believe, which we talk about in DNA a lot um i'm intentionally not getting super into the zizek stuff because there there was like two and a half three pages of it and it was it was good but i think sometimes like bridging the gap philosophically to pastorally and then to like out into the like into the workplace i i do we just need like another two hours today and i think we could do it but there's a lot of work to do but i think i think most simply what he's saying is what we do is what we believe And that's why in Scripture, they talk about this, and Hollis Phelps talks about this in the reading, but that's why in Scripture we see that there's this dichotomy of belief and unbelief. Help my unbelief. Because if I help my unbelief in in God so that I would actually have faith enough to follow Christ, right? It's not just hypocrisy. It's not me acting against what I truly believe. So in the cases of the rich young ruler and the rich man in the story with Lazarus, each man is judged by what they do or by what they have done, and neither is judged by what they believe. So, again, when we do something that goes against our state of belief, our actual beliefs are actually being revealed. Now, this all goes back to desire, which we focus on a lot in our DNA groups. We start asking questions about, okay, why does this seem like a good idea? What do you want? That's like, that seems to be the question that Jesus is asking throughout all of Scripture at its core. What do you want? What do you want? But a change in desire here, a change in ordering our desire as it relates to mammon, can only result through material reorientation. So it requires a change in our practices and our habits. And there's a quote from Hollis Phelps that I included here. It says, such material orientation cannot be reduced to a unilateral act of the will. So the will is not sufficient in and of itself. The heart is willing, but the flesh is weak. You can't just wake up today and hear the sermon or this class and say, okay, I'm going to change my desires. We have tried a lot of different ways in the church of doing that. We, I think most frequently, at least in my experience, we believe that if we feel bad enough, then we will want something different than what we want. If we can shame ourselves enough for wanting the things we want, then all of a sudden what we want will change. But... I don't think that that's, it's not working out great, (laughs) let's say. So in action, in our actions, we act as if we can serve both God and mammon. And when we blunt the severity of Jesus's teaching on mammon, by moralizing it and internalizing it, we actually are allowing mammon to rule and order our lives. The problem of mammon can take the form of individual greed or desire, but it cannot be reduced just to those. It is primarily structural and it's symbolic rather than just moral. Mammon, because it facilitates access to our needs, our wants and our desires, functions by default as the source of our values, as the source of our values. Indeed, it, is, it represents how we navigate our very being in the world and living even if our stated desires are otherwise. We direct our time and attention and devotion towards mammon, not necessarily because of some moral weakness we have or fault in us, but because we have to. The world runs on mammon, so how is one to live in the world except through it? This is why we've come to say this is the water that we've swim, we're swimming in. The, the alternative since birth for you has been to drown in this system of mammon. Right. So it feels that we have reached an impossible point in this teaching about mammon. But this is actually fundamental to the teaching of Jesus. That's one of our gospel passages for today. Jesus says that what is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Jesus, God in the flesh, our clearest image of what God's character looks like, enacts what he says. He opposes mammon. And in doing so, he offers us here at the table a glimpse of what an alternative to mammon might look like. However, unfortunately, he doesn't provide us with a program for it. So, John Crawford, we aren't exactly given marching orders for how to engage with cryptocurrency and NFTs. (laughs) 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 The second reading for this week was Poverty and God by Herbert McCabe. And this reading, I think, is helpful. It takes on the same question or problem but it takes it on from a more pastoral theological perspective compared to the more philosophical perspective. And so it starts to to bridge. Like I read these in conversation with one another and then bringing those voices both into the conversation that we're having here in our midst. And I think this feels generative to me. This is like the only way we can do this is like reading what we can and then reading them in dialogue with one another and then dialoguing here at the table because what they're talking about relates to, but it's not exactly what we're dealing with. In fact, What we're dealing with in this room, depending on our neighborhoods and where we live and what our jobs are, looks a lot different. Even though this structure and system of mammon still, it is uh, meta, it is overarching this whole situation. McCabe says that when we aim at riches, in other words, when we are in the system of mammon, we are aiming at taking possession of things and even perhaps taking possession of people. You can see it already just in this language of possession that there's this inherent violence of possessing something. It's uh, It pits us over and against one another. There's only so much to go around. I've got to make sure I get mine. And so from the time that you graduate high school or college and you enter the, the workforce, your only option is to worry about making sure you have what you need. The poverty of God McCabe kind of lays out is that God has no possessions. God takes nothing for his own use. God only has life and being, and in reality doesn't have life as much as is life, similar to how God doesn't have wisdom or goodness, but God is wisdom. God is goodness. So to aim at poverty, which is kind of the the call that McCabe leaves us with in the reading, is to aim in the direction of simplicity, away from possession and toward being, toward existence. God created, God creates without becoming richer. So we're often tempted to consider what motive God had for creating the world. Have you ever wondered that? The question that we're kind of asking, Joel, have you thought about The question that we're asking there is, what did God hope to gain by creating? Like, what did God need that creation gave him? But McCabe spells out for us clearly that this question is absurd (laughs) because God actually has no need. Now, when we say it like that, it becomes clear, right? But at least for me personally, I was kind of brought up thinking like, well, yeah, God obviously needed something. That's why God created. But this is actually like a huge core theological misconception of the character and spirit of God. Only creation acts by God, or gains by God's act. God's creation is purely a gratuitous act of love. It's the characteristic act of love, which is giving life. McCabe says it like this. The beauty of creation adds nothing to the beauty of God, just as the light of the moon adds nothing to the light of the sun, but simply reflects it. Here's where Trinitarian theology can really shape and inform and guide us. The Trinity is not just like a fact for us to memorize, but it's actually an understanding of God's three in oneness, which informs our understanding of God's character. Outward flowing, self-giving love, that is the picture of the Trinitarian God. Not only does this inform our understanding of God's character, but it begins to foster an imagination within us for how we can exist in the world, how we can live together, how we can relate to one another, and how we can belong to each other. Humans flourish not to the extent that we possess riches, but to the extent that we give life to one another. McCabe, towards the end of the section that we read this week, says it's bizarre that it's become so popular to use market as a metaphor for society. Markets, of course, are a part of living, but so are courts of law and laboratories. However. None of these is a useful or helpful model for what society actually is. I really enjoyed having these two, these two read together. I felt like it, it gave me a better imagination for how to take this philosophical thing that we are trying to address on this journey and start to, starting to fund an imagination for a way forward. So the way that I'm seeing a lot of what we're doing in this, this whole season of Lent as we're talking about confronting mammon is first God is giving us eyes to see. And as we learn to see, then we are learning to repent and say yes to God's way in the world. And then the next step, just like the flow of our services on Sunday, is we're gonna be sent out into the world with more of an imagination for discerning faithfulness today. So that doesn't mean we'll have all of it figured out, but these readings, I think especially, help to take what's philosophical down into the theological and pastoral and then start to fund a little bit of an imagination for us to at least discern and discuss together. One of the issues that I, I'm gonna point out, I took a little bit of an issue with McCabe's language of aiming at poverty because it felt a little bit like it's, it's almost going against the Hollis Phelps reading in that like, you can't just wake up today and say, I'm going to change my de- desires. So to wake up and say, I'm going to aim at poverty It feels like it's maybe just like re-upping this approach to like, all right, now if I just turn up my effort meter or my shame or guilt here, then maybe I can aim at the character of God with my life. Which again, I don't think is working. Okay. I think that's it for the overview of the readings.
0: (laughs) I have some other notes
2: here, but I think that's a good place to stop. Do you guys have any reflections or questions that we can discuss and discern together?
3: I really struggle with something speaking. I really struggled with the double because it was a double stop. Yeah. I kept my first cave, And the conclusion that I came to is this is not being preached to the poor. This is being preached to the rich. Mm-hmm. And how we need to change. You wouldn't go in and tell Jesus didn't go to the poor man and say give away all the possessions in that sense, in the same sense that he did a and ruler. And even the title, Rich and Ruler, yeah, yes, status, you know, poor mm-hmm. you know, people different status. So it really went a long way, I grew up very poor mm. and I don't look like I did now, but I did, and and yet the truth is the motivation is for everybody who's poor, is to not be Right. and so we have to come in with this teaching work and say, this is how you want to be, aren't you just still looking at your poor, mm. because right. you know you're not, Yes. and the world doesn't function, mm. and so it's hard. It's hard to have a of yeah, that because
4: I know what it is to live without gas and electricity water mm. and without food and
3: without clothing. And to make making yourself,
4: yeah.
3: And I'm grateful for, for the ability to use you know, some of those creative things in the this property, but it's not all separate, yeah. And so this is the problem. Mm. This is not a message you were sending. Yeah. Product, but... Yeah. So I to come kind of straight through that. Yeah. And then of course come around and say, oh yeah, well, I'll learn a from him and it too. Mm. And so yeah, it's
2: kind of a it's it's a struggle. For yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So for you online, if you couldn't hear, Sylvia was mentioning that. The reading was a struggle this week, especially because on the more philosophical side, this is not a message for those who are in poverty or in lack. Uh, It's not a message that's one size fits all. And yeah, I think actually what you said kind of struck a nerve. Ryan shared some thoughts earlier in the week about these readings, and uh, I wasn't sure how to incorporate them into my sermon fully. But one thing that is coming up as you were sharing was that in both of these stories, the rich young ruler and the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus is the only person that has a name. And so I do think that there's something to be mined here about identity. And the rich young ruler, that that is what preceded him and named him. Same in the story with Lazarus. It was the rich man and Lazarus. And so I, I think... <laughs> unfortunately it doesn't uncomplicate the situation in fact it just more makes it even more complicated for us to live in this tension but i'm really thankful that you shared that and that's something that i've even last week when we were in this class we were talking as we talk about this being the water that we're swimming in um i i think just speaking for myself it feels like very much a white man's privilege perspective to be like get me out of this water you know like just like philosophically suck me out of this you know but like, what about the people all around me that are drowning? I, I don't know, I don't know what to do about it. I, I, I know that just leaving the water would not be, doesn't, that doesn't feel like faithfulness, but what does that mean? I'm not hundred percent sure. I think Ben is gonna nail that next week.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
4: and power,
1: and a system that creates poverty. So it's not just individuals that need a message of, like, you need to reshape the your life. It's, it's a whole system that we're all caught up in the various ways.
0: Yeah. Okay.
4: And, uh, and I think that that's the way that I, I'm trying to read it. Because I, I see myself hmm. as benefiting from that system, system, right? So white person, so for example, uh, but I also see myself sort of being taken
1: advantage of by that system. No ways. yeah. Um, right, there's you know, there's I don't have as much wealth as somebody who's you know just increasing their wealth very bad.
0: Hmm. I think there's there's various ways for us to interact
1: with, but I think it's uh, it's helpful for me anyway right, to step back and frame it as this is a system, a world system that makes meaning of the world that. That, that we
2: participate in the that, that's part of the that's part of the complication, it makes it actually more
4: difficult
2: yeah. to understand how to, how to respond. Yeah, to totally. Yeah, for you online, uh, Father Ben said that he's finding that it, it seems more helpful to enter into these readings as opposing powers and principalities of mammon. And so I would just add to that even one of the quotes that I shared from the, the Hollis Phelps reading is that we are not participating in mammon because of some moral flaw in us uh, or some shortcoming that you have. Actually, like going back to Matt's teaching last week about neoliberalism and all of that, that's like, that is a very individualistic view of it. And so without, it's interesting because there's freedom in that. It's not just about you. It's not just about how you're relating to money. That's part of it, I'm sure but you're also not, we're not off the hook, right? So it's instead of it being like a shame-based motivator, we are actually being invited into the way of a kingdom, you know, to be an embodiment of that, a first fruit of that. And so it, it can feel like a tiny shift, but to me it feels like such a total different posture and reorientation to how we enter into these things. Isaiah. Uh, kind of, Sylvia said, Josie and I were talking last
1: night about the Cambridge, the Cambridge, the Cambridge
2: <clears throat> That's how I'm saying it, but I don't really yeah. know. <laughs> no, I, I don't really. <laughs> no, it was
1: McCabe. Yeah, yeah. And, and we kind of had similar feelings. Like, I think kind of what Ben said. Like, I think Phelps critiques the system, but McCabe felt very personal and mm. didn't feel to be like talking about the system mm. in general. It was just like aim for poverty. Yeah, which felt really weird. Like, we were talking about how like we were just read the attitudes, right? And it's like, what's that? Are the poor? And that's like. That seems like a reorientation of the system, right? Yes. Like blessed are the people on the bottom, but nobody's like, and you know, blessed are you when they persecute you. But it's like nobody's like, blessed is persecution. Like, right. you know, go aim for persecution. Like well, yeah. aim yeah. for you know, it's like like aim for poverty felt so so weird. Yes. Uh, and and it felt like uh felt like some whole philosophical like psycho battle. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, interesting. I, don't know, I didn't we didn't really well, enjoy it. I, I, yeah, something,
3: something I was reflecting on. Well, two things one is, yeah, Jesus isn't saying blessed as poverty, but when I think of Jesus, so poverty growing up overseas, mm. right, in West Africa, it's disease, you're dying, right, yeah. or you're oppressed. And for Jesus in that space, talking about poverty, like it is very intense. But Jesus comes and he heals yeah. You know, and like he restores them. And he's like, blessed you? Like, I am going, I'm going to bless you and heal you of your disease. I mean community <laughs> know now because mm-hmm. you are outcast, right? Like he's flipping everything upside down. So that, that's been helpful for me just to think about <clears> how <throat> ministry this mm-hmm. order to like restore and yeah. be with the people who are merchants. But I did what I did like about that reading though is um when you talk about it, Spencer? Is just how God
0: isn't possessing everything.
3: Mm. I still can't, I can't believe that in my books. Mm-hmm. like, yeah, I know that earth is his footstool. Right. Like he commands the heavens. Mm-hmm. Like, this guy possesses it all. And he mm-hmm. constantly is wanting. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, wait a minute, a minute. There is something here about like God just freebo me
4: that I don't Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's
2: good. Yeah, for those of you online, Isaiah and Josie just shared that they kind of struggled with the uh, macabre reading McCabe. Sorry, now I'm. Are you doing this? I had a I had a thing I was doing. Now I don't know what to do. They they struggled with the reading because in a in a sense it almost felt like it was uh, saying you know, blessed is poverty. And so they're reading this intention with our reading of the Beatitudes and how that's not, Jesus isn't saying blessed is poverty or blessed is persecution. But at the same time, Jesus is going to those who are poor and saying blessed are the poor and healing those who are sick. And so there's some, again, some more wrestling going on between these texts. Matt. Yeah. the, the, The thing
4: that bridges this for me is that Jesus's invitation to the rich young ruler isn't give away your money and go with destitute? His invitation is give away your commitment to mammon and follow the kingdom economy. Thing. Hmm. And this is where I think I, I read the as assuming the kingdom economy, but he needed to make it more explicit because Thinking about just poverty or riches, poverty or riches without any other larger frame does keep it inside of the world of man. And you're you're right. So yeah, there's nothing valorizing about being starving or being diseased, right? Or dealing with the systemic issues of poverty and how that impacts education and family life and all that. But the invitation is into this group of people who are taken care of by some women and learn how to live in abundance And I think that, that that's how we stand against man. It isn't valorizing poverty, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's by creating a counter policy, a counter way of being in the world that in that way of being pushes up against me. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Father Matt was saying that what helps to bridge this gap for him is that Jesus's command to the rich young ruler isn't to give away all of his possessions and then live a life of destitution, but for him to give away his possessions and then follow the way of Jesus. And so to live into this community, this kingdom way of life that's opposing mammon, but also there's not just a pure rejection of the fact that money or things exist. It's not just asceticism, but it is, I think Father Ben is going to get into this a little bit next week, but Jesus is like, You know, eating. There's perfume, expensive perfumes being poured out, things like that. So Jesus isn't just living in a cave and saying, "I just reject money at all or possessions," and running around naked. But there's there's some other kingdom imagination. (laughs) There's other kingdom imagination that's funding a way forward here, Marissa.
3: It's trying to do your story about Lazarus today, right? Like the name Lazarus means God helps, and that idea of like, so the names are the rich and ruler and God helps, mm-hmm. and this idea of like, like his this one identity is found in like I will provide for myself and my and my, my my dependency is upon providing and then like making a name for myself mm-hmm. versus my dependency is upon God, my dependency is upon. This kingdom of people. And I think so. Uh, I think for me, like that idea of like kind of switching the word too to like, where am I like depending? Like, where am I putting my like dependence mm-hmm. for getting me today or getting me to whatever, like where am I looking for that um mm-hmm. is really helpful for me. And I think when I when I learned about the class has meant, God helps in mm-hmm. your discernment, I was like, that feels like such a an opposing thing opposing versus
2: just like, oh, Lazarus is holy
3: because he's poor, like, yeah. no, he's holy because he's depending on God. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, and I think that was really helpful for me. Yeah, that's really good. So Marissa is sharing that, even just the name, so the rich young ruler or the rich man, and then Lazarus. Lazarus means God helps, and so seeing those things as being in opposition there are opposite ways of approaching the world. Actually, in the passage right before Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus, he is talking to the Pharisees and he says that uh, now that the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom has been proclaimed by John, that there are those of you who are trying to take it by force. And so that that posture and that way in the world of acquisition I think is fundamentally on display in both of those passages and then opposed by Lazarus, by God helps, you know, just a totally different identity and way of being in the world. I saw a hand over here somewhere. Oh yeah. Can you pull your mask out? Oh,
3: sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Me in it is what he's saying, aiming at poverty, but he also seems to be defining poverty very differently. Yeah. Like it doesn't seem like people die of malaria in their turds because they don't have access, but it's like saying that God is poor. I mean, he seem to be aligning poverty much more the sort of set of goals the way in in the world does. I, I'm still not totally sure what I think about it, but it
2: seems like he was offering a different definition of poverty yeah. than the definition that we usually see around mm. us. Yeah, yeah. So Leah is pointing out that McCabe is re, kind of using a different definition of poverty. Um, and I, <clears throat> cynically, personally, I, I think that this happens a lot in any kind of writing, but especially in like church type things. It's like somebody like, the poverty of God. Wow, I got to figure this out. Like, what? I'm just kind of like, is this helpful? How much is this helpful? And how much is this like hurting my understanding of what you're talking about? Yes. That's just my own two cents, but sorry. Does somebody have a? I don't want to overlook. Okay. No, that's
3: what I was going to say. We can't hear them either. Oh, gotcha. Yeah.
2: Sorry. <laughs> Any other?
3: I was just going to, I was so struck by the way just you express the idea of how Jesus flips things and then combine with what Matt said about how the goal is to get entirely outside of the construct like that just makes my brain because we are so within the construct of man like I have to literally like perform a complete paradigm shift to think about this. I like it gets stuck or it gets yeah. stuck, mm. and then like when it wants to go back its root like, or whatever. Yeah. And uh, I think that's been uh, like I'm kind of a whatever theology and I love think about this stuff. But it's been always needing some construct. So, mm. so I mean, this has been especially like, wow, this is better. Better. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that resistance to like trying to. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Laura just shared that she's fine, she's noticing how difficult it is to have a different imagination for operating outside of this system. Yeah. This is the hardest, by the way, I just want to say this is the hardest part of this doing this is trying to make sure that I'm saying the question. I feel like very insecure that I'm butchering what you say. It's like it was better than that. Sorry. My bad, guys.
0: (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah. Um, it is like it is a, it is a lot to try to work our imaginations around this. Like kind of to so what Father matt said about being it together. There's something that encourages me is that it has been done before. Like early church history is kind of a thing. Mm. the beginning. And I know some that the syncretism is not what we're aiming for, but at, as as monastic communities developed in the 34th century, one of the things that really marked them was a different economy. They took seriously uh things like uh you shouldn't like not working for your own benefit but work so you have something to share for others. And nobody is yeah. like they become these units of production. They're still farming, they're still so working still producing things um and participating in the wider economy but there's also sufficient personal ownership there's everyone is working for their neighbors so but no one is destitute it's not like yeah but while you have the big die but there uh, people have been invited into the community where they are provided for where people have enough to for our welcome uh, and some of the really strong higher class hierarchies of the Roman social structure are eroded. And that's not like, we can't just copy and paste that. It's so much more, it's <laughs> different, but it is encouraging to me that Christian communities have done this before
2: together. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That seems so, cool. yeah. That's good. so Leia's is just proclaiming good news to us. <laughs> <laughs> While this is hard, and we have to discern faithfulness today, this the church has a history and a tradition of finding ways of living faithfully and funding a new economy where. The poor are welcomed where you're working not for your own acquisition and gain, but for your neighbors. And so while we have to figure out 2022 in Indiana, the church has been doing this and the Holy Spirit is present and at work here amongst us. Yeah.
4: Maybe at the risk of a dizzying us too many reframes. Um, I said this last week, this can become like overwhelming and you can get paralyzed. Yeah. I want to hold before us that this isn't a problem that we're tasked to solve. As much as it is the life to which we're called. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I know most of us got welcomed into Christian life without this footnote.
0: <laughs> That's
4: and I'm sorry, I was too. And that things. But but blind Bartimaeus didn't get invited to the Christian life without this footnote. No? And the rich young ruler didn't get invited to this Christian life without this footnote. No? And Peter and James and John didn't get invited to this Christian life without this footnote. No? And so what we're doing as we talk about Yemen is reclaiming the actual Christian life in the spirit that we are called to. Hmm. That is necessarily social and political and economic. And reclaiming that domain is what it means to be Christian. Yeah. So for me, that helps me because I know, well, of course, like, man, is isn't my problem to solve. Or I'm going to come out of this class with three ways to,
0: like,
4: you know, create a monster. Um, rather, I need to relearn what it means to follow Jesus. Yeah. And and man, has colonized my imagination. So that
2: I'm incapable of doing it. So Jesus has yeah. Yeah. Father Matt's reframing it for us as not a, not mammon as a problem for us to solve, but it's a way that we are being invited into by the Holy Spirit and Jesus. And so something that we, all of the texts of the New Testament and the Gospels, where people are leaving their way of life and following Jesus, they had that pure invitation where we right now are having to do the work of understanding that there's something that we are being invited into. Going back to what I shared earlier, it's not just something bad about us that we have to figure out on our own or else we're going to miss the kingdom, but God is doing something in our midst and inviting us into a way of being. Any other thoughts? There was one, there was a comment on here. I'm just going to read this. So The gardener said, I wonder if the McCabe reading is saying that when we aim toward poverty, we are rather aiming towards those in poverty. In other words, not to find poverty as the higher good, but to live among and for the poor. Which I think is just an interesting way of, you know, probing and asking the question. Um, One thing that struck me about just even this conversation this morning is we are very sectioned off from and you know uh insulated from people that are in different socioeconomic classes than us even in my neighborhood when we moved into Bates Hendrix seven years ago to plant a church like we we really wanted to be like out there for jesus you know like we wanted to live downtown and like this is where we want to be and like very quickly i realized that like there's a lot of people that are doing this same thing whether it's church related or not and they all just happen to be like you know about to be 30 middle-class white Americans. So like, it's very hard. We are very stratified and segmented as a population. And so this idea of being in and among and for the poor, and like, I don't know how we do that work, but I do think that's part of the work that we are being invited into.
1: Sorry, just a thought about that. Like I think about what that means a lot and like, I can't, I always come to the conclusion, I'm not saying it's right, but like that if I'm just like, hey, I'm just gonna live among the poor, like my actual wealth becomes destructive to their lives. Like the only way I can actually live among the poor is to actually like for myself. Because when I just like take my wealth into a like a poor community, like eventually like it gentrifies the community. Like it. It caught like it actually causes destruction to.
2: I don't know, this is
1: yeah, sure, sure. But I just like it feels like <clears throat> there's like a material call more than just like hey, go decentralized property. I mm-hmm.
0: Yeah,
3: I guess but, uh, maybe add to that a little bit in that proximity is still massive, still and I kind of combining what was one word commented and was saying like, if I just go in there with my wealth to serve myself in this, yes, I am causing destruction. Right? If I go in there to serve the community, to serve a neighbor, there's a way that I can do that that does not cause destruction. Right? Now, it doesn't mean that I should retain all of my wealth in that community. There is a material call to it. Absolutely. But I, I think that, what Spencer said about the uh, words are hard, I can't think of the name, but like the challenge of getting that proximity, yeah, and how sort of segregated things are, even that is a construct for yeah. Like, if you don't have to see the poor, if you don't have to see people who are in different circumstances, yeah. culturally associated, with whatever, yeah, it's very easy to just continue, and so. I think that proximity absolutely has to be part of how we change this. Yeah. Even if it means rethinking what love is and how
2: we use it, et cetera. Or especially that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think just to oversimplify what both of you just said, like, I think there is like, especially white flight and like the advent of suburbia and the American dream moving out of the city that's like part of a siphoning off of society and actually separating intentionally from different communities, people that are poor, people of color. And now, so that's that's bad, just so you know, that's bad. <laughs> but now also, if you just say, I wanna live in a poor black neighborhood, what can happen from you moving into that neighborhood is one, are you are you sure you're not colonizing this neighborhood intentionally or unintentionally? Are you raising the property values, great for you, and raising the property tax is bad for the residents that have lived there for 50 years, and so <laughs> it's very, very complicated. However, I do want to say in response, Isaiah, to what you're sharing, I'm thankful that this confrontation to these systems is also includes in this country. You know that we can start to politically activate because is that maybe part of how the church I think that I have experienced growing up is like, let's do a canned food drive, let's take sleeping bags to homeless people. All of that is good. I'm not saying that that's bad. However, the white church that I've experienced, by and large, does not know how to activate on a political level for our neighbors and for the least of these. And the reason that we don't know how to do it is because most of the people I talk to when it's election season is like, it doesn't really matter who's president, because I'm okay. I'm like a middle class white American. And so learning to see these things and then starting to find a way to organize your life around caring for the least of these I hope that there is an imagination for us to be able to live in and among other people and to eliminate poverty even, but we're not gonna do it all this Sunday. But I do, I do think this is like, this is the imagination though that I think we're being invited into. It's like, it's not just, not just going and living by poor people. That doesn't mean you're, you like checked your box, you know? Like we are resisting and opposing Mammon. I was gonna say, uh, since Jeff and
3: I went to the West Side, Living amongst people who are suffering from poverty and crime, we are our farm backs so up right up to Section Eight of the and there's a lot that happens there. And when you live, and I make friends with the activists there, and she tells me what happens and what she can't sleep through because there's abuse and the store and there's like always. Um, anyway, is whatever. Mm. Um, it when you live closer, even though we don't experience that, yeah, um, it motivates you more, mm. it makes it real, yeah. So, um, I would just say it populates <laughs> our imaginations, it's colonizing our imaginations with this. This is not the way. Our brothers and sisters have to live yeah. and how can we have
2: changes. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. So yeah. there is a power to live a of Yeah. 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 Mary Ellen just shared that moving to where they have on the west side where their farm is has there's a power to proximity to be able to actually see what's going on in community and to start to feel that call or have an imagination for how to care for people or to just care about what's happening. I mean, what came up for me is like part of our the way our society is structured is when there's a problem in your neighbor's houses or that's bothering you, like you're just supposed to call the police. But actually, when you know the people that live there and you know what's going on, then calling the police is actually maybe is like you're just kind of opting out of community, right? And I'm not saying there's never a time to call the police, but we are being invited into a different imagination for how to relate to one another. You know, when there's loud music next door, calling the police is... It uh, it's it's inhumane. It's dehumanizing because actually a human would talk to another human yeah. about it. And we all have experienced in the last few years what kind of violence can be brought on by just calling the police, the quick and easy thing to do. Father Man, yeah, uh, just a just a an artifact of
4: this. My friend DB um,
2: lives in a,
4: um, a mixed economic neighborhood. And um, she's black. And there were last year a group of black kids out, as an English were these black kids out on the street corner. And they were, they were drinking and, and making a lot of noise. And um, Dee Dee was like, this is going to end with somebody calling the cops on these kids. And it's going to end back. So she and another mom from the neighborhood, she said, in our pajamas without our bras on, <laughs> so went out, to the corner and started dancing and goofing off <laughs> nice. um, and did so because they knew that that would change what was happening on that street corner and probably ended the kids dispersing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Yeah. And she explicitly did it to take responsibility for her neighborhood yep. and to keep the police away from children. Yeah. Um and so I just share that to say like uh, there, there's an imagination there and a and a commitment to people there that I need to learn from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. Right. And that's a, as an example of what you're talking about. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I think something um that
0: shares
3: me too as sort of this like um of product of man, and especially growing up in the middle class white church, there was always this push of like, oh, and like help the poor and being you know what I mean? It was a very individual, individualistic idea. Yeah. Like, you yourself go well and do this thing. Mm-hmm. And then we just kept seeing, you know, especially from the church, was like this person would go and they would burn out. And they would go and they would out. They would go. But it's never this like, how do we, you, you know, and I didn't want to talk about her, but like, I think something as we talked about this, something that also puts a man on its head is this idea, like we can't like as an individual person, yeah. Like you even as the parents of people in our own neighborhood or you know, relationships that we've been making. Um, I just realized like I would be totally burnt out right now. But because we are trying to be this process of community or whatever, like um, but I think it just it's it just it's that idea of like, you know. I got a man and I slavery everything, but like that individualistic, like I can go and do this and I can save people and I can do this thing. Yeah. Instead of saying like, hey, let's all together live life in this thing and mm. then and then it will sort of also, you know, we will be dancing on the streets for all this. <laughs> <So one laughs>
2: Maybe have time for one more comment or question. Father Matt? I mean, this
4: is just a. Um, maybe don't this for the
2: video. I've kind of, kind of stopped. St- <laughs> I guess I know what I'll be repenting of today during the confession. Don't tell nobody. <laughs>
4: To uh, the Samaritan and the Shared Baptist Church, is that their building is old enough to be on the historic register of buildings, but the historic register of buildings has certain uh, standards and um, qualifications that you have to meet in order to be on that. And uh, they, um, the Samaritan doesn't do those, uh, meaning taking care of it. Also, it has had issues with the city trying to encroach on their land and take property that they're not using, which is very valuable in their neighborhood now. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that Ben and Spencer and I have been discussing with Beyonce is um, The city doesn't take white people's land. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just doesn't like, like it would a historic black church's land. Mm -hmm. And so I want to dismantle the system that privileges my white skin economically at the disadvantages of Black people. I want that to go away. But can I use that? Can I squat can I, can I next to a Black brother and say, now try to take this, right? What happens now? Hmm. Right? Um, now, I'm not saying that's what we're going to do or should do, but I'm saying that uh, I think that's part of that's towards getting creative. With pushing back against man, even if the system doesn't change, even if we have to have a system that's jacked up, right, and trade on the absolute or wealth or the way that we take care of the property, maybe if we were co laborers there or, or whatever that is. Um, so, and that's, again, I'm not, I'm not saying we're going to do that. I'm not saying we should do that. I'm saying these are some of the ways that we can begin to Try to get creative to inhabit spaces that are definitely jacked up yeah. in, in, in maybe um, scandalous ways.
2: All right. Let me pray for us and we'll close this class. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue to make your invitation into this kingdom way of life apparent to us. Continue to light our path ahead of us Pray that you would foster within us an imagination for how we can use the power and privilege that we have as a hedge of protection around our neighbors. Give us an imagination for how we can give our wealth away and reject what is hurting us. And give us eyes to see where you are present at work and an imagination for how to join in that work. Today as we go from here and this week as we go back into the workplace, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.